Hello and welcome to this episode of Climate 201 from Physical Attraction. On this episode we're going to be talking about what on earth is a climate scenario or an RCP. So one of the things that we discuss most often when it comes to climate change is this idea of uncertainty. The earth is an incredibly complex system full of different interacting parts and humans' activities influence it in a number of different ways, which can themselves again interact in a complex way with natural processes and cycles that occur in the ocean and atmosphere and the biosphere, to name just three. Consequently, when we kick the system into a place we've never seen before, despite our best attempts to understand and model it, there is inevitably going to be some uncertainty about the results. This is reflected in the range of estimates that we have for something like the climate sensitivity, which is the amount that we think the climate will warm if we double CO2. According to the IPCC, this is somewhere between 1.5 degrees Celsius and 4.5 degrees Celsius, with a best guess of around 3 degrees Celsius warming if we double pre-industrial CO2, which we're on the way to doing at the moment. Now, there, there's been some recent papers that have narrowed this down a bit, but we'll discuss that more in another episode. However, the largest measure of uncertainty in what will happen to the climate over the next century is about what humans do. It's not yet clear which path we will take in terms of our emissions. So if you want to attempt to model what will happen to the climate in the future, you have to contend with this massive uncertainty of how human society will behave. Some early climate modellers didn't really worry about this too much and just tried to answer more specific and one could argue more scientific questions, such as what happens to the climate if we double CO2, or what happens to the climate if we continually increase our emissions by, say, 1% a year. The average percentage increase of CO2 in the last 250 years or so has been around 3% a year, just for reference. In the last couple of years, this has actually been around 1% a year for the first time in a long time. But in 2017, it was 2.7%. So it's very variable, and again, the growth each year depends on a number of different factors. But at least 1% a year is a sort of standard uh, number that you can pluck out of the air to imagine what happens in a world with increasing CO2 emissions. More recently, though, there has been a number of quite serious attempts made to try and compare the potential outcome across different ranges of possible human actions. In other words, how is the climate likely to change in the next 100 years, depending on what we do? How much depends on the decisions we take? And this kind of thing entails the creation of climate scenarios. So the idea of a climate scenario is really you specify a set of emissions into the future. Perhaps in some scenarios we cut our emissions, in other scenarios our emissions will just continue to increase, and we can then see what the range of possible human actions and the range of possible future outcomes, the range of possible climates that we will get from the range of actions that we're taking. Now, obviously, the creation of climate scenarios is a very difficult thing, because in a very real sense, you're effectively attempting to predict the future. There are a huge number of factors that will contribute to our greenhouse gas emissions in the future, which we've talked about in the episode on the Kaya decomposition. I mean, for example, does the world economy continue to grow, or does it saturate at some point? Does the world's population continue to grow? How do developing nations grow? Do they end up burning fossil fuels at the same rate as Americans or Europeans, or do they grow instead economically with alternative technologies that don't depend on fossil fuels as much for economic growth? How does technology change? Do we find, develop, and use low-carbon solutions in place of fossil fuels? 
But we're talking about a whole century here. I mean, alternatively, maybe we find some new use for fossil fuels or some new process that's in very high demand that produces greenhouse gases. No one could have predicted, for example, that we would have had so many electrical servers devoted to mining a thing called bitcoins 20 years ago. Does the availability of fossil fuels get worse as they begin to run out, which starts to price them out of competition with the alternatives, in which case our emissions might be expected to go down? How do our agricultural practices change? How about transport? And so on and so on. Particularly in the 1990s and the early 2000s, when a lot of climate scenarios were first developed, things could plausibly evolve in a, in a huge range of different ways. Renewables at that time were still quite expensive, although research was ongoing. It seemed clear that globalisation was going to continue, leading to rapid economic growth in the developing world, which might mean more consumption of fossil fuels. There was no globally agreed upon target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions or setting any kind of global temperature target. So if you're looking at things from a sort of 2005-2006 perspective, things do look very bad. Renewables are there, but they're not necessarily cheaper than the alternatives yet. We don't have a global agreement. Uh, all of the COP meetings and the IPCC meetings that have tried to come up with global targets have, have failed, and uh, the Kyoto Protocol, which was the best attempt to do that, was not really working very well. And we were seeing, for example, industrialization in China that was being driven increasingly by coal-fired power plants. And so in 2005, 2006, 2007, there's this very real risk that you're going to have a sudden and rapid and sustained throughout the century, really, glut of fossil fuels that would continue to increase emissions right the way through to the end of the century. On the other hand, you could be optimistic from that position and say, well... These renewables are getting cheaper, and there are attempts being made to work on a global consensus for climate change, and people are increasingly you know, working on this politically, and governments are starting to take it more seriously, and so on. And you could plausibly argue then that if this progress continued from 2005-2006, that maybe we would get to a place where the world might start taking climate seriously and start cutting their emissions. Or indeed, you could just as plausibly, in my view, argue that they would plough on with reckless abandon to dig up and burn virtually every fossil fuel that was available. Now, when it comes to climate models, there are obviously dozens of different climate models that everyone is using. If you further increase the uncertainty by not even modelling the same thing and the same scenario and the same trajectory, then clearly you can't make comparisons between the results of the models. And we want to make comparisons between the results of the models so that we can see which ones perform better at predicting the future and which ones are flawed in various different ways. And of course, so that we can sort of average over them and say that that might be a more reliable or robust predictor than just using a single model. So for this reason, starting in the early 1990s, climate scientists developed a set of representative scenarios which might indicate broadly classes of predictions for how things might develop in the future. Now, this isn't to say that we will exactly track along any one of these scenarios. It's just that some have lower emissions, some have higher emissions, and so on. This way, everyone can run the same scenarios, and they can compare the modelling results in like-for-like -like scenarios. And that's what the RCPs really exist to do, the representative concentration pathways, as they're called. But we'll get on to that. So obviously, one thing that should be clear is that the actual future, what we'll actually experience is not going to correspond exactly to any one climate scenario. They're not perfect predictions, and they're not actually designed to be most likely predictions for what will happen. 
Instead, they just hope to span the space of all possible futures. And by the way, as should be obvious by now, we can't let the perfect be the en enemy of the something when it comes to this type of research. In other words, we want to actually do something, even if we can't completely predict how well reality is going to go in the future. The same is true of models. Models are obviously imperfect, and none of them will actually correspond exactly to reality. But if we wait until we have perfect computer models and perfect knowledge about how emissions would develop in the future, before we were willing to say anything about how climate change was going to turn out, we wouldn't need to run the simulations, and we wouldn't need to use the models, because we could just look outside and see how it's going. And another thing that should be clear to people is, given how influential the scenarios developed by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, can be in terms of the climate change worlds that we model, and the conclusions that we draw from that, that yes, there is a lot of politics surrounding what should go into these scenarios, how they should be used, how they should be referred to, and what they really represent. But we'll come on to that later. The earlier set of scenarios aren't used as much by recent modelling, so I'll just briefly mention that they were called SA90, IS92, and SRES. So the SRES scenarios, they came from the Special Report on Emission Scenarios. What made these scenarios slightly different was that, while previous scenarios had just specified where energy was coming from, or dealt with predictions for population, energy mix, and fossil fuel use, the SRES tried to map things out in terms of storylines for how humanity might change into the future that were a bit more coherent. For example, one version of the future might involve rapid economic growth, which is what governments prioritise at all costs, population that increases to 9 billion, and everyone gradually returning towards and converging towards a similar lifestyle in terms of their energy demands as globalisation continues apace. These were the SRES A1 scenarios, and they were further divided based on how the world gets its economic growth, whether the world focused on fossil fuels for economic growth, whether it used a more balanced mix of technologies, or new technologies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions, for example. Another version of the future might involve economic growth, but also a transition away from energy-intensive industry and towards a more service-based economy, as we've seen in the UK, which has helped us to reduce emissions here. Perhaps population grows more slowly, and globalisation becomes more about strong climate policies, greater emphasis on energy efficiency and ecological solutions. This would be a world that prioritised the environment more over economic growth. And these would be the B1 scenarios. And each set of scenarios also takes into account possible geopolitical differences. Maybe globalisation stops or is reversed, and the world is more divided between some groups that act together and try to reduce environmental harms and others that don't or the world is divided between some areas that grow rapidly economically and others that remain lagging behind for various different reasons. These contrasting scenarios are the A2 and B2 scenarios respectively. So obviously I'm not expecting anyone to remember all of this, I suppose the point that I'm making here is that there was an attempt here to try and create something that would be ideologically and logically coherent as a different sort of storyline for how the world might develop over the next hundred years. And that's the type of thing that you need to do if you want to make reasonable predictions for how all of this stuff is going to pan out. For example, you might argue that it doesn't make much sense that we would live in a world where population suddenly explodes but the economy shrinks at the same time. Once these scenarios for how the world might change in the future has been developed, the storylines are converted into what they might actually mean for emissions and concentrations of greenhouse gases. 
And when you have these emissions and these concentrations of greenhouse gases and other pollutants, that's what you feed into the climate models to determine how the climate changes. Now these Threres scenarios have since been superseded by two sets of scenarios which are still in use today, and these are the ones that I'm going to spend most of my time talking about. So the first and arguably most important, certainly the most influential set of scenarios, are the RCPs. RCP stands for Representative Concentration Pathway. And the concentrations here are the concentrations of greenhouse gases. So the RCPs, all that they really are is sets of numbers. The concentrations of each greenhouse gas in the atmosphere projected to be there in each year from 2005 to 2100. These pathways are chosen to give a certain amount of net radiative forcing by the end of the century. Now the radiative forcing, remember this is measured in watts per square meter, so that's sort of units of energy, joules per second per square meter, and it's a measure of how much additional heating is occurring due to the presence of greenhouse gases. Currently, we estimate that the net radiative forcing due to humans, so that's the sort of positive heating that comes from our greenhouse gases, minus the cooling due to our aerosols, is around 2.3 watts per square metre. That's actually from the IPCC's report in 2014, so it's a little out of date now. It's probably a little bit higher now, but it's around 2.3 watts per square metre. That's including the positive effects from greenhouse gases and the negative effects from aerosols. So you can see that the point here is to specify concentrations of greenhouse gases, and at the end of the century they'll give you some level of heating that's due to humans. So in terms of the RCPs then, the numbers that they're given represent the radiative forcing due to humans in the year 2100. So the most important four are RCP 2.6, which means you have 2.6 watts per square metre of radiative forcing at the end of the century compared to 2.3 now. RCP 4.5, RCP6 and RCP8.5. RCP2.6 is obviously the most ambitious of these scenarios, where the net contribution from humans to radiative forcing is about the same in 2100 as it is today. We'll talk a little bit more about what it means later on. RCP4.5 is a little less optimistic, RCP6 even less optimistic, and RCP 8.5 is really the doomsday scenario where we have to burn pretty colossal amounts of fossil fuels right the way up until the end of the century to get there. So I know that talking in terms of radiative forcing is a little bit confusing and not particularly brilliant, so just as a sort of vague guideline here. In RCP 2.6, the world stays below 2 degrees Celsius. That's the only scenario of the four where we stay below the Paris Agreement uh, limit on warming that was agreed to by the world's governments. So the most optimistic scenario is also the only one where we hit our targets. And warming at the end of the century is probably around 1.7, 1.9 degrees Celsius, depending on your model. RCP 4.5, we obviously miss that target because we have more heating at the end of the century and warming is between 2 and 3 degrees Celsius. RCP 6, again, warming is even worse. It's uh, 3 to 4 degrees Celsius. And RCP 8.5, we're talking about greater than 4 degrees Celsius of warming. You can get some pretty crazy warming depending on your model in RCP 8.5 with feedbacks kicking in and things like this. So this really is a doomsday scenario. Now these are by far the most widely modelled climate scenarios. For example, when I search for RCP 8.5 in Google Scholar, I find almost 18,000 scientific papers have been published which either use or mention this scenario. 
And it's important to understand that quite often, when you read headlines in the newspaper about, say, scientists predict that droughts will be three times as common by the end of the century, or scientists predict that hurricanes will be 50% wetter by the end of the century due to climate change or whatever, more often than not, the underlying study will end up using one of these scenarios. If you don't know which scenario is being used in the model, or how likely it is, then it's quite misleading to treat all predictions as equal. Because, of course, all of these model results are assuming that humanity behaves in a certain way in the future to generate these greenhouse gas concentrations. And in some ways, I think this is something that we can underemphasize in our coverage of climate, is actually, we still just about have a choice about what kind of future we're going to live with. It's not the case that it's inevitable that huge swaths of the tropics or whatever will become uninhabitable by the end of the century. That might happen under a worst-case scenario, but we have ways and technologies and policy options and decisions that we can make that can help us to avoid the worst-case scenario. So there's nothing inevitable about what's going to happen over the next 80 years due to climate change. So much of it is still within human power to influence and alter, even though the task of influencing and altering it could be quite dramatic. One thing you will notice about the RTPs is that they're essentially concentration pathways chosen to give you these numbers for radiative forcing, which are essentially chosen to span the range of feasible outcomes fairly well. But we only specify the greenhouse gas concentrations to the atmosphere and not how we get to those concentrations. So you have to backtrack from the concentrations a little bit to try and figure out what kind of world you're going to be in for each of these scenarios to figure out what greenhouse gas emissions will lead to which concentration pathways. And converting from emissions of greenhouse gases, how many greenhouse gases we're throwing out into the world, to the actual concentrations that end up in the atmosphere is not always straightforward because of the Earth's carbon cycle. For example, half of the carbon dioxide that we emit is absorbed by the oceans. But in the future, the ocean will be less effective at absorbing CO2 as it is now as it starts to saturate with CO2 and also warms up. So depending on how you model these ocean processes, it might be that emitting a tonne of CO2 in the future will lead to a higher concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, because the ocean is absorbing a smaller fraction of the CO2. Some models include processes whereby carbon dioxide can be added to the atmosphere from the world as it warms. For example, due to the destruction of forests which act as reservoirs of carbon in more intense and increasing fires, or from the melting of permafrost in the Arctic, which releases methane, which is stored there. Now, the magnitude and nature of these carbon cycle feedbacks is still much debated, but obviously they will impact how your emissions of greenhouse gases from the Earth turn into concentrations in the atmosphere. For example, if you emit CO2, which warms the planet and causes the planet itself to emit more CO2 through these processes, the overall concentration would be higher than you would predict from your emissions alone. So it's not completely straightforward to backtrack from the concentrations that you're talking about to the emissions that get you there. Nevertheless, we can still work out some things about the worlds that are implied by the different RCPs. We'll focus mostly here on the best case and worst case scenarios here, RCP 2.6 and RCP 8.5, with RCP 4.5 mentioned a little bit. RCP 6, for whatever reason, is hardly used at all. So let's describe what might typically happen to emissions in these scenarios. In RCP 2.6, CO2 emissions peak in 2020 and sharply decline after that, halving globally by 2040 and getting very close to net zero 
by 2070, before becoming net negative by the end of the century. In other words, by the end of the century, not only have global emissions of greenhouse gases fallen to zero, but we're sucking CO2 back out of the atmosphere, which we'll discuss more in our shows on negative emissions. Typically, when this is run in most models, this leads to CO2 concentrations that peak at around 450 parts per million in the atmosphere. The CO2 concentration is currently around 416 parts per million in the atmosphere, and rises by 2 to 3 a year. In most models, the temperatures stay below 2 degrees Celsius throughout the scenario, which means it's the only one that is compatible with the Paris Agreement and the most ambitious mitigation scenario that's considered in the RCPs, in the main RCPs. There are some more ambitious scenarios that are considered by some modelers, but we won't go into that too much here. RCP 4.5 is a more pessimistic, albeit perhaps more realistic, scenario. In this scenario, emissions gradually increase until the middle of the century, peaking at around 2040 to 50, slightly higher than they are today. Then they fall before hitting a constant floor of around 5 gigatons of carbon a year, around half of today's value, in 2080. I suppose this is meant to represent emissions that are hard to get rid of due to, for example, industry, agriculture and transport, as opposed to power generation. By the end of the century, CO2 concentrations are around 520 parts per million and continuing to rise slowly. The net result in most models is that the planet heats by between 2.5 and 3 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, so well above the agreed upon 2 degrees of warming limit from Paris. RCP 8.5 is the scenario where we burn fossil fuels like crazy. Emissions rise very rapidly throughout most of the century, eventually stabilising at around three times today's levels. The result is a CO2 concentration that rises to a staggering 950 parts per million by 2100, and temperatures that skyrocket, perhaps to between 4 and 6 degrees Celsius above where they were pre-industrially. To call this a doomsday scenario is almost an understatement. So you can see that the major climate scenarios are spanning quite a staggering range of different possibilities. We have a world where rapid climate action is coordinated globally. Emissions never rise again after this year, peaking around now, and breaking the trend of pretty much continuous increases which has held since the 1700s. In this world, we slash our emissions, eventually to the extent that we can suck billions of tonnes of CO2 out of the atmosphere every year by the end of the century. And when this is done, we keep to the 2 degrees C Paris target, just about. This is RCP 2.6. On the other end of the spectrum is a world that burns a truly phenomenal and heroic amount of coal and other fossil fuels, ignoring skyrocketing temperatures as they do so, and the net result is a climate hellscape that pushes large parts of the world into being essentially uninhabitable by the end of the century. This is the RCP 8.5 world. And then there are a whole bunch of possible scenarios and possible futures in between. Now this is obviously controversial, and you have to see why these scenarios are controversial, because these scenarios determine what we simulate with the finite computing time that we have at our disposal, and it influences the predictions that people make, and it influences the headlines that you see about climate change and so on. If all of these scenarios that you're seeing, if all of these headlines that you're seeing are based on a worst case scenario, then that's something that you sort of need to know about before you can make a proper assessment of how likely that prediction is to come to pass. Ultimately, the scenarios themselves amount to a particular set of lines on a graph, but the question of how you interpret them is huge. 
In particular, one thing that's always interested me is what would climate experts, economists and scientists, etc. draw as the most likely scenario? And I bet that actually most people think the most likely scenario doesn't look like any of the RCPs at all. I know that my most likely scenario wouldn't look like any of them. Now, it's easy to be incredibly critical of these scenarios because, of course, there are flaws of each of them. And I'm sure that no one who made them would even argue that they are supposed to be a best guess for what will happen. They're supposed instead to span a range of possible futures. But this is quite a subtle interpretation that's often lost when these are discussed. When a climate scientist says that some study is making some conclusions, the first thing that we do is we look to the scenario that's modelled and we make our own judgments based on this. But the vast majority of people likely have no idea about these scenarios. And why would they? Because of course they're obscured in this jargon, which is the case of so many technical fields that make these things difficult to understand. You know, I think of all the three-letter acronyms that I've already tried to explain in the course of this episode, and you see that it, it's already obscured from view in a lot of ways. Regardless, one of the major controversies that has shown up in recent times surrounds the RCP 8.5 scenario and how it should be interpreted. Now, of course, I have my own views on this, but I'll lay out some of the different points for you here. Now, sometimes you will see the RCP 8.5 scenario being referred to as a business-as-usual scenario and it's sometimes referred to as business as usual. But what does business as usual mean? For some, that implies if current trends continue. In other words, the business as usual scenario is what happens if we don't include any additional climate policy, if we take no action and just let things unfold without any regard to climate change. For some, it carries the implication that this is what we do if we had no climate policies in place at all, if we had no knowledge of climate change whatsoever, and no one had done anything ever that would try to mitigate it. So I think maybe the COVID-19 pandemic is a good example. A worst case scenario might assume that people continue meeting up in the same way that they always did, even as the death rate starts to skyrocket. Whereas in actual fact, that worst case scenario is unlikely to be realised, even if you have no COVID policy, because people will, to some extent, see what's going on and change their behaviour. In my opinion, if RCP 8.5 is anything now, it's really a worst possible case scenario. I think you could make a good argument back in 2005 when it was first developed that things like RCP 8.5 could actually happen if the world was run by fossil fuel interests who wanted to do nothing more than exploit the world's fossil fuel reserves to their maximum possible extent to spur economic growth up until the end of the century. In that sense, you could make a case for it then as a worst possible case scenario if nothing whatsoever was done. But the reality is that a lot of things have been done. It's not like we've been living in a world where people have had no knowledge of climate change and no motivation to develop low-carbon alternatives. As I never tire of telling you, renewable electricity is now the cheapest form of electricity generation across 85% of the world's population. Carbon regulations have been slow to come, and the fossil fuel industry is still being subsidised, but some positive change has arrived as economies have increasingly chosen to move away from coal, the worst of the fossil fuels, towards natural gas and renewables. Coal is an expensive, dirty option now with a poor reputation, and as countries get wealthier, they often enforce stricter air pollution standards. The air pollution alone from activities like burning coal is part of what currently contributes to one in six premature deaths in the world. And while I would argue that the world pays nowhere near enough attention to environmental and sustainability issues, 
we're not quite as awful as the humans who are in charge of the RCP 8.5 world. Perhaps largely because it's not even profitable to burn all that coal anymore. So this is where you get back to this idea of what does business as usual mean? Because nowadays, where in a lot of cases it's no longer economical to burn coal, a scenario that says we're just going to burn all of the coal is not even necessarily that plausible. And there are plenty of arguments that we've actually reached peak coal worldwide, and it may well be that it's very difficult to predict a future scenario where our coal consumption increases from where it is today by a substantial amount. I'm not the only person to make this criticism, of course, and so RCP 8.5 has to be viewed as a worst-case scenario, if anything. Given the progress we have made on climate, and the progress we've made on making renewables cheaper in the last few decades, alongside this growing shifts towards things like electric vehicles and so on, for something like RCP 8.5 to happen nowadays would probably require a global shift away from climate policies and towards fossil fuels, which might happen, but it feels to me increasingly against the tide of history and economics. And as John Maynard Keynes said, the ideas of economists and political philosophers, whether they are right or whether they are wrong, <laughs> effectively run the world. Now, others feel even more strongly about this. Google RCP 8.5 is bollocks, and you'll see lots of people in the climate field discussing whether or not it's worth using this scenario. One piece of valid criticism, for example, arose in a paper by Jianlang Wang et al. in 2017, which was the implications of fossil fuel supply constraints on climate change projections, a supply-side analysis. In other words, the point here is that one criticism that's valid of the RCPs is that they don't take into account calculated limits on the possible supply of fossil fuels, instead just considering how demand might change. But of course we know that if there are constraints on the supply, then although demand might change, the price will also change, they'll get more expensive, and it may well be that your economic model and your society in general is going to spend less on fossil fuels. I mean, for example, we've seen that many of the earlier developments of renewables, like wind and solar were motivated by the oil price shock in the 70s when fossil fuels were suddenly getting more expensive and people were suddenly seeing this as a national security issue and they felt the need to pump public money into developing alternative forms of energy. In fact, it's only cheap oil that has really made that those budgets go down from the 70s. I, I always think about what kind of utopian world we could have lived in if people had really stuck to their guns on researching more efficient solutions back then, and uh, the price of oil had remained high, but obviously it didn't happen. Now, very long-term listeners will remember from our Teotwauki episode, Peak Oil, that there was a lot of debate surrounding how many fossil fuels are really available, and whether they will ever run out in a conventional sense. New reserves are being discovered all the time, as are new methods of extraction, like fracking for natural gas, which was hardly ever done a few years ago or the extraction of oil from shale rather than drilling wells into the ground or under the ocean. It might be the case, as the BP economist Christoph Ruhl chillingly argued, that anything can be turned into oil if there is demand, and that, quote, oil will never run out because there will always be a price at which the last drop can clear the market. Whenever I read that article of his, I do read it in a Bond villain voice. It's just something about anything can be turned into oil that sort of sounds like the closing monologue of some James Bond movie. But I digress. Apologies if you're listening, Christoph. 
But this is really just semantic trickery, you know? At some point, supply constraints do kick in, if only by making new exploration and extraction of fossil fuels more expensive than the alternatives, at which point it stops happening. It doesn't matter if there's a, a price at which the last drop of oil can clear the market if no one wants to buy it and there's cheap alternatives available. It's not going to happen. This paper by Wang et al. tried to assess those supply constraints, and their argument is essentially that fossil fuel production will peak and prevent a scenario like RCP 8.5 from ever happening. Glenn Peters and Zeke Hausfather, who are both worthy followers on this issue for climate change, discussed this controversy in an op-ed in Nature called Emissions, the business-as-usual scenario is misleading. They said, quote, RCP 8.5 was intended to explore an unlikely high-risk future, but it has been widely used by some experts, policymakers, and the media as something else entirely, as a likely business-as-usual outcome. A sizable portion of the literature on climate impacts refers to RCP 8.5 as business-as-usual, implying that it is probable in the absence of stringent climate mitigation. The media then often amplifies this message, sometimes without communicating the nuances. This results in further confusion regarding probable emissions outcomes because many climate researchers are not familiar with the details of these scenarios in the energy modelling literature. End quote. I'll just interrupt here and say that I should point out this is not necessarily something that patronises people to say that they don't understand. I have friends who are literally PhD candidates in atmospheric physics, far smarter than I am, I should point out, who are very active and engaged in the climate debate, and who, when I asked which was the most likely climate scenario, said the worst case scenario, RCP 8.5. So this is not something that comes from ignorance necessarily, because you have to be quite deep in the weeds to realise this and to actually know that this worst case scenario relies on some pretty unlikely sounding assumptions nowadays. And there are lots of people who don't know this. Zeke and Glenn continue. Happily, and that's a world we climatologists really get to use, the world imagined in RCP 8.5 is one that, in our view, becomes increasingly implausible with every passing year. Emissions pathways to get to RCP 8.5 generally require an unprecedented five-fold increase in coal use by the end of the century, an amount larger than some estimates of recoverable coal reserves. It is thought that global coal use peaked in 2013, and although increases are still possible, many energy forecasts expect it to flatline over the next few decades. Furthermore, the falling cost of clean energy sources is a trend that is unlikely to reverse, even in the absence of new climate policies. Assessment of current policies suggests that the world is on course for around 3 degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century. Still a catastrophic outcome, but a long way from 5 degrees Celsius. We cannot settle for 3 degrees Celsius, nor should we dismiss progress. End quote. Now, I think that five-fold increase in coal use in particular would represent a pretty incredible decision to turn away from cheap alternatives and start to burn coal like there's no tomorrow. And according to some researchers, there might not even be a sufficient coal supply to do that. So I think it's worth saying that if you think this is the most likely scenario, you have to really justify that claim a bit better. However, there is a slight wrinkle to point out here. One of the things that we mentioned was that the RCPs only include concentrations of greenhouse gases, and they don't specify how those gases might end up in the atmosphere. It's possible that, if climate sensitivity is higher than we thought it was, or if those carbon cycle feedbacks, where a heating planet emits its own carbon, remember, could mean that a lower emissions trajectory still leads to the same amount of greenhouse gases ending up in the atmosphere. 
So some will argue that it's still not beyond the realms of possibility that something like RCP 8.5 could happen in terms of the concentrations, purely from these feedback loops, particularly if these climate feedbacks turn out to be a dominant effect towards the end of the century. Nevertheless, I think that most people would say that a world with little climate action probably looks more like RCP 6 or 4.5 than it does RCP 8.5 because of what we've achieved already. So what are the dangers here? Well, I think it should be acknowledged that there is a temptation to try and scare people who don't take climate change seriously into taking action by emphasising these worst-case scenarios. But if you take this too far, it can tip over into climate doomism, which I will talk about more in a future episode. But in essence, in this debate around scenarios, which seems quite esoteric, there is a behavioural psychology debate going on at the heart of this, you know? If you tell people the good news about the progress we're making on climate, but that there's still a long way to go before we can be sure that we've really solved the problem, does it make them more likely to make the efforts that are required, or does it make them complacent? Similarly, if you emphasise the worst possible case scenario, does the fear of the potential horrors that, realistically, just about plausibly, might be visited upon us, motivate people to take positive actions that head off that disaster? Or does it instead lead to a type of paralysis, an assumption that we're doomed and that nothing we can do possibly matters, or an assumption that it would cost too much or prove too unpopular to actually act on the problem, and that we might as well try and ignore the upsetting prospect of the future, or maybe, worse still, defend ourselves against it while letting everyone else go to hell? If you still call RCP 8.5 business as usual, despite the progress that's been made, then doesn't it imply that the efforts we have made have been useless so far? When in fact people since the 1980s who have been motivated by trying to fix climate change have made the worst case scenario less likely. Yet there are popular books like David Wallace Wells's The Uninhabitable Earth that I would say arguably focus too much on this worst case scenario. A lot of the examples of the worst case climate impacts that Wallace Wells draws on are from papers that model RCP 8.5 the worst climate change scenario, and he doesn't necessarily talk about that. I won't go into too much detail on this book, or the article that it began with, because it's been done brilliantly by a team of scientists on the website Climate Feedback, which allows scientists a forum to comment on the claims made in the popular media. So go and Google Climate Feedback on the uninhabitable Earth if you want to see more of this. And I would say please do go to Climate Feedback if you ever see a viral article about climate change and you don't know how seriously to take it because we, we're we not saying here that everyone in the world should know what an RCP is or should know what an integrated assessment model is or what climate sensitivity is. I'm providing this resource for people who do want to know these things but actually there are ways that we have a, a responsibility and a duty as climate scientists to communicate the implications of our work more clearly than the media does and that's what climate feedback does, they will take the sensationalism out of these things and explain stuff in more detail. So it's a really good resource to go to if you're interested in that. So naturally, it may not surprise you to hear that I have a pretty nuanced opinion on this. There are obviously doomers out there who are way too keen to emphasise how terrible things might be and exaggerate the danger for their own ends, which are often political. And I think that is counterproductive. I also think that there are people out there who are far too keen to say that the climate problem is basically solved and are selling us a lot of optimism about it, 
when actually it still requires massive efforts from us to get anything close to the Paris target. Both of these people, both of these groups, probably think that they have a really good assessment of how human psychology works, and that one group thinks that you can scare people into action, and other groups think that you should be more optimistic and present people with a sunnier case for uh, the state that we're in, and that will lead them to action. And I think they're both wrong to different extents. But we can all agree, surely, that in an ideal world, the best way to make decisions is when we have the best possible information. If all of your attempts to adapt to climate change are based on a worst-case scenario that's worse than anything that is likely to happen, you're not going to be preparing correctly. We live, unfortunately, in the real world where people need to be able to assess different priorities. Now, frankly, I think that climate change is going to be bad enough and a difficult enough problem to solve already, without dreaming up doomsday scenarios that are hopefully getting increasingly unlikely thanks to our efforts. We need to understand what's really likely to be ahead of us and have a realistic assessment of how much progress we've made. People will always have their own motivations to stake out these extreme positions. Extreme positions are simple, eye-grabbing, attention-catching, and easier to fit in a tweet. If I was doing podcasts about how climate change was going to kill everyone by 2025 and we were all totally doomed, or podcasts about how it was all an exaggerated hoax that wasn't really going to happen, I bet I'd get more listeners, and probably more backers, than my attempts to describe the nuances of the ongoing debates in the climate community, the uncertainties and the shades of grey. People don't want to hear that stuff, and so a lot of people stake out these extreme positions. But I don't know how helpful that is. I st call me naive, I still think you have to trust people to be able to look at something and say, okay, this is one interpretation, this is another interpretation, this is the balance of evidence, this is the balance of probabilities. It's still worth acting to do as much as we possibly can to solve this problem, even though the worst, worst possible case scenario might not happen. Because as always, the reality is usually somewhere between the caricatured extreme positions. With all of that said, is RCP 2.6 really any more realistic than RCP 8.5? The fact that we have four main climate scenarios, and in only one of them, the most optimistic, do we actually achieve our climate target of 2 degrees Celsius. And remember, that target was once not a target, that was once considered unacceptably dangerous warming, and now it's what we're aiming for, and that we'll probably miss. And that should tell you something about how bad the situation is. The implications of RCP 8.5, that will quintuple our use of coal over the next century, for example, might seem ridiculous. But then, so might RCP 2.6, and the idea that we will put a brake on the runaway train of increasing emissions and that they will stop increasing immediately, despite having increased pretty much every single year for the last three centuries. So might the idea that we can totally transform how we do agriculture, energy production, industry and transportation in the next few short decades across the world, globally, and then end up spending many dollars a year just to clean up our historic mess with negative emissions. Yet this is what is required for something like RCP 2.6 to happen. And I think there is a growing consensus now that RCP 8.5 should be regarded as an absolute worst-case scenario, while a lot of what has to happen for RCP 2.6 is dramatically optimistic. So I urge caution when you read these disastrous headlines, 
If it's based on RCP 8.5, just remember that this is quite unlikely trajectory for us to take in the 21st century, and that we can make it more unlikely with our actions. Climate change is going to be bad enough and worth doing everything we can to fight without overstating how dangerous the situation is or understating the progress that we've made. The actions we've taken have made these worst case scenarios less likely. It wasn't always clear that this would be the case and a civilization that just burned all of the available fossil fuels to generate power probably would have ended up on an RCP 8.5 like trajectory. But we have made progress and I think that's something to celebrate while acknowledging that avoiding the worst possible scenario that we could dream up hardly means we're finished or even that we've done an adequate job so far. Now another criticism that's often made of the widespread use of these scenarios is the way that they are defined inevitably implies certain things and certain limits. For example, you might find it interesting that, although the Paris Agreement sets an aspirational target to limit global warming to 1.5 C, and the IPCC had a whole report on the importance of limiting global warming to 1.5 C, none of the scenarios we've discussed actually do that. <laughs> although it's true to a certain extent that the RCPs just tell us what concentrations will be, in practice, RCP does involve negative emissions at the end of the century. It assumes that we'll be able to suck billions of tonnes of CO2 out of the atmosphere with technologies that don't really exist at scale yet. So you can see that, even though it's just a line on a graph, there are inevitably some political and technological assumptions that get implied by this scenario, one way or another, based on what the people who created it consider feasible. And it's more or less assumed in RCP 2.6, for example, that it's going to take until 2040 to halve emissions and 2070 to get them to net zero, and that we would need negative emissions afterwards. Essentially, the original scenario modelers assumed that it wouldn't be possible to cut carbon emissions faster than RCP 2.6, and so we need negative emissions at the end of the century. But is this necessarily true? Well, you can question that. Another thing that people are sort of concerned about is that all of these scenarios assume that the economy and the population continue to grow quite massively. And some people will say that we don't want economic growth anymore, or that our economic growth should be concentrated on places that need it and not on frivolous things and things that just consume energy and consume energy wastefully. So I think this was dealt with by a paper that's called Grubler et al, who considered a new low energy demand scenario, RCP 1.9, which is now being modelled. In this scenario, CO2 emissions are very rapidly cut in the near term, falling by about half every decade with what the authors envision as a combination of energy efficiency, renewables, and demand-side changes in people's behaviour, that's consuming less energy, all of which result in a world with much lower demand for energy. This in turn then allows net emissions to fall close to zero by 2050. Now this scenario might not happen, but by allowing ourselves to imagine it and understand it, we can get a better understanding of what might happen if it were to come true. This is by no means a comprehensive criticism of the IPCC scenarios, or the use of scenarios in climate modelling. But one additional point I'd raise is to say that there's been a good deal of modelling, for example by the HAPPY project, which determines what happens to the climate in terms of temperature targets, 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees and 3 degrees. We deal in temperature targets even though the scenarios don't, so it makes sense to have some of this in there to fill in some of the gaps. So I end the whole thing with appealing to you to remember what climate scenarios actually are. These are scenarios. They are potential futures, none of which is particularly likely to actually be realised, but which together show you how climate change could transpire across some cases that are best and some are worst. 
they should always, always be taken with a grain of salt. They're not really supposed to be predictions, much less prescriptions, for how climate change will unfold. Instead, they just allow us to model a range of different future scenarios that we can all agree on, and to try and find the differences that arise due to different levels of human action. From RCP 2.6, where we do a lot to mitigate climate change, and RCP 8.5, where we do quite a lot to exacerbate it from where we are today. But these caveats certainly don't mean that the scenarios are immune from criticism, and indeed the debate around how appropriate each one is and how we make them will continue to rage, probably forever. They are not perfect, and of course they have their limitations, but they also have their uses. There's always going to be a role for exploring what the worst case scenario is that could happen with climate change, if only so we know what our actions are avoiding and helping to avert. If we don't have that knowledge, then how can we assess how important this situation is for us? But if we are too pessimistic or too unrealistic, we risk focusing on the wrong things and creating the wrong incentives for people. So the next time you see a study about climate change reported in the media, or a paper on climate change, try to see what happens in these different scenarios and understand their limitations, and things like climate feedback will help you with that. And remember, the main point here is that the main uncertainty about what will happen with climate change over the next century is down to us. It's our actions. It's what we do. It's what our emissions are over the next 80 years that is the principal determinant of what's going to happen with climate change. And terrible futures and not-so-terrible futures are all possible. So that's what I think we should reflect on most of all, is that what the scenarios illustrate is that the biggest uncertainty is us, and what are we going to choose to do? Thank you for listening to this episode of Climate 201 from Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web in various different places. We are on Twitter, PhysicPod. You can find us on Facebook at Physical Attraction. There is the Facebook Science Podcast group. You can go to the website, physicpodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form that goes through to my email. So any comments, questions or concerns, please direct them there. I love hearing from you. You will also find on the website ways that you can donate to help support the show. We are independent. No one tells me what to say. No one tells me what to think. Um, and you can't do so even if you donate money, but I would appreciate it. There you'll find the link to the PayPal for one-off donations and also the Patreon. You can subscribe there and get access to loads of bonus episodes, loads of early release episodes. That's something you can do if you want to help keep us going and if you want to help independent content creators. You can, of course, tell as many of your friends as possible to listen to the show if you think they'll be interested, if you think the information is useful. Uh, You can tweet about it, write about it on social media, whatever. You can review us on your podcast platform of choice. You know all of the things you can do to have a good time. But of course, the most important thing you can do is, until next time, please take care.